0: On the night of October 4th, 1967, 13-year-old Peter Gorham was tucked in bed, buried in a cozy quilt and his favorite flannel pajamas. Comfort permeated the house, and as the clock on his wall crawled to 11
1: p.m., Peter started to drift off. A few minutes later, a fluorescent light flashed across his eyes. He shot up, startled, and peered curiously toward the window, Were the neighbor kids pranking him?
0: Peter pulled himself out of bed and tiptoed towards the steady glow, a mischievous grin on his face. But when he peered out into the night, his smile disappeared. This wasn't the neighborhood kids. Outside it was as bright as day, and the startling white light was emanating from something hovering in the air above the yard. Peter couldn't quite tell what it was. All he could see was glaring
1: light. It was whistling, too. That sound a bomb makes as it tumbles through the air. Peter's heart started to pound. It had to be the Soviets. They were about to kill him and his entire family, maybe all of Shag Harbor. He closed his eyes, stealing himself. But then, as suddenly as it had appeared, The light shot off into the air, disappearing in a flash. Peter stared at the suddenly dark sky, never imagining that this was just one of countless inexplicable sightings in Shag Harbor that night.
0: Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about
1: our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring You can find all episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram
1: at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: On October 4th, 1967, the sleepy fishing village of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, was the site of what dozens of spectators thought was a plane crash. But no aircraft were reported missing, and as confusion and suspicion mounted, The Canadian government officially labeled the
1: object a UFO. This week, we'll hear about a host of strange sightings up and down the southern Canadian coastline that evening, and meet the Shag Harbor residents who witnessed the strange crash. We'll also hear about the oddly unproductive investigation that the Canadian government launched to determine what really happened on that dark autumn night. Next week, we'll explore some of the
0: answers investigators and locals provided for the deepening mystery. We'll also discuss how this case became the only official UFO sighting accepted
1: by the Canadian government. Shag Harbor, with its cozy population of less than 500, sits right on the edge of the vast Atlantic Ocean. And in the 1960s, most of its population was involved in the fishing industry, specifically seasonal lobster fishing.
0: This meant the village residents were ever attentive to the Bay of Maine, their local corner of the shadowy deep. They watched the rhythm of its tides and the patterns of its wind-whipped waves. They noted when the water finally warmed up midsummer and when it started to go cold again come winter. They knew how the glassy surface of the bay reflected even the faintest bit of
1: moonlight on a dark night. It was a familiar place. So, of course, when something disturbed the water late on the night of October 4th, 1967, everyone in town noticed. The evening started out like any other Shag Harbor Wednesday.
0: By 6.30 p.m., dinner was brewing on stovetops across town. Televisions were broadcasting in family rooms. Teenagers were hopping in their cars
1: to see their sweethearts. Beers were cracking open. Far above Shag Harbor, on Air Canada Flight 305, Captain Pierre Charbonneau and co-pilot Bob Ralphington were comfortably ensconced in the cockpit. The
0: sunset flecked the clouds around them with pink and gold as the clock ticked past 7 p.m. The engines hummed their familiar tune. They stared out of the window placidly,
1: cruising
0: into the darkening evening.
1: They'd be in Toronto soon enough. Pierre could almost feel a fluffy blanket wrapped around his shoulders, a hot cup of cocoa with a bit of whiskey in his hands. That was just the ticket tonight. Pierre's mind was already there, when suddenly,
0: just as they passed over Sherbrooke and Saint-Jean, Quebec, something shook
1: him out of his calm. A brilliant orange square of light soared through the sky ahead. Pierre, startled, grabbed Bob's shoulder,
0: pointing at the object. A string of smaller lights trailed behind it. It couldn't be more than a few miles away, and it was flying a course roughly parallel to his own like any other Air Canada craft. But that was no Air Canada flight, Pierre pointed out. He and Bob knew the schedules. In fact, they shouldn't be running into any other commercial flights around here at all.
1: They stared out at the strange object in alarm. It certainly didn't look like any aircraft they'd ever seen. Squinting, they tried to get a better look at the shape beneath the bright light but it was too brilliant to see anything but the basic form, a square, a light emitting square. Before they could hazard a guess as to the nature of
0: the thing, a silent explosion enveloped in a murky blue cloud and the small trail of lights started to move about in strange maneuvers
1: as if they were rearranging themselves in some meaningful pattern. The pilots were baffled, What was going on? They tightened their grips on the steering gear and stared at one another, wide-eyed. It was time
0: to get out of the way, book it back to Toronto, and file a report about
1: whatever it was that was happening out there. Pierre and Bob's sighting, however, wasn't the only one around Nova Scotia and Quebec that night. In fact, it was just one of many on that crisp October evening, and the strange crafts were drawing closer and closer to the quiet fishing village of Shag Harbor. As Pierre and Bob sped off towards Toronto, 600
0: miles away, in the Nova Scotia town of Eastern Passage, two people were sitting outside watching the sky. It was a crisp night, but a clear one
1: with just a sliver of a moon, and the stars were out. But at 8 p.m., something brighter and much closer than the stars obscured their view. Two strange lights zooming through the air. They looked like they were heading southwest along the coast of Nova Scotia and towards Shag Harbor. The couple glanced at each other, concerned.
0: Those lights just didn't look like helicopters or airplanes. The Cold War
1: was raging, and they were awfully close to the United States border. Everyone was aware of the nuclear threats between the Soviets and the Americans. A bomb could drop at any moment. Better call the Canadian Naval Air Station. The couple didn't specify the color of the objects and their description was different from Pierre's report half an hour earlier. They saw fewer lights in an entirely different formation. But perspective can change the way we see things, and this couple weren't the only people on the ground to see something glowing along Canada's east coast on the night of October 4th. Down the Nova Scotia coast in Mahone Bay, a family of
0: three was taking an evening stroll when suddenly a huge orange ball
1: of light flew across the sky, illuminating the quiet street in front of them. The orb was accompanied by several smaller lights, just like Pierre's square had been. All were flying at an incredible speed, and they were changing directions rapidly. Again, similar to the odd movements Pierre documented in his report. The family grasped one another's hands
0: and stared in astonishment as the mysterious objects disappeared over
1: the Mahone Bay Harbor. What an odd sight and the mysterious lights continued on their course. Far
0: out on the sea, Captain Leo Mercy was staring at the North Atlantic from his fishing boat's deck, his mind wandering. He'd seen this same landscape too many times to count. It was a comfortable scene, despite the ocean breeze
1: nipping through his thick work gear. The 20-man crew was quiet too, working away steadily in the darkness. They knew every corner of the boat, and with the help of a few lamps, they felt their way through the shadows as if it were midday. But the darkness made the strange sight on the horizon all the more clear. It was a sudden bright red ball of light, and a quick radar check picked up three other invisible objects around it. The orb and the three night-cloaked objects all seemed to be positioned on the ocean's surface, probably floating, Captain Mercy surmised. Mercy, cursing the Coast Guard, muttered that fishermen
0: should be alerted of military training exercises. He instructed one of his men to radio the sighting into the Royal Canadian Coast Guard and Halifax Harbor authorities.
1: But when, around 11 p.m., red light suddenly rose vertically from the surface of the water and ascended along an arc-shaped trajectory, he started to wonder. Perhaps this wasn't a military exercise after all. This report, again, doesn't perfectly align with all the others. But there were multiple similarities. The one central light, though Mercy didn't specify the shape, and the adjacent secondary objects, even though they didn't light up. These early
0: reports, however, were far from the most shocking to hit Canada's coastline on the night of October 4, 1967. They were the precursor to a mysterious and thoroughly documented possible alien spaceship wreck.
1: Up next, we'll hear about the Shag Harbor crash, an event which puzzled and enthralled not just the village of Shag Harbor, but all of Canada. Now back to the story. The evening of October 4th, 1967,
0: began just like any other quiet Canadian Wednesday night. But at 7.15 p.m., Air Canada pilot Pierre Charbonneau spotted a strange square light trailing four small glowing objects. A series of reports followed Pierre's, all of them noting odd flying lights around Nova Scotia's coastline. The reports were just the beginning of the strange occurrences that night. There was also the case of 13-year-old Peter Gorham lying in bed just outside the town of Shag Harbor, a bit southwest of Captain Mercy's ship. He was half asleep by 11 p.m., but a few minutes later, A bright fluorescent light in his yard startled him awake. It hovered in the air for a few minutes before zooming off into
1: the night. Up and down the Nova Scotia coastline, reports of strange flying objects were called in to local radio stations. One photographer out at a beach with some friends about 100 miles northeast of Shag Harbor even took a long exposure photograph of a trio of amber and blue lights he saw up on a hill. A Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable spotted a red light along the Bay of Fundy, and a host of fishermen, besides Captain Mercy, reported seeing odd light formations out on the water. The reports began with Pierre's from his Air Canada plane at
0: 7.30. The last were around 11 p.m. The mysterious lights seem to be moving roughly southwest along the shoreline with a few deviations.
1: While the details provided across these reports weren't consistent, the fact that they were almost all light-based sightings makes the inconsistency easy to explain away. Lights can turn on or off and change color. And when
0: they're not illuminated, the objects they're attached to can become all but invisible
1: in a dark night sky. But at this point in the evening, most people weren't connecting the dots between these sightings. They just wanted to know what the strange flying object was. Theories ranged from military drills to a possible Soviet bomb. But many weren't so sure that a conventional explanation fit what they had seen.
0: And that was before the most inexplicable event of the night occurred. The lights would come to a spectacular stop in Shag Harbor where 17-year-old fisherman Laurie Wickens was driving around town with four friends in his 1956
1: green and white Pontiac. Music blared from the speakers. Everyone was chatting and laughing, teasing each other, and singing along to the radio. It was a good night, a normal night. Laurie set the car at a brisk
0: cruising speed as they zoomed down Highway 3 towards Shag Harbor. The
1: wind, with its salty snap, whipped across his face through the open window. But when they entered town at 11.25 p.m., Laurie slowed down. He knew the drill. A traffic cop might be waiting around any corner, but
0: he was alert and ready for their tricks. They were not going to catch him
1: tonight. It wasn't the police, however who startled Laurie as he scanned his surroundings. It was something flying in the sky. Laurie squinted upwards, confused. The ship looked like a brightly lit aircraft of some kind, flying about 1,000 feet above the car and tilted downwards at a 45-degree angle. There was something beautiful about it. Intrigued, Laurie turned the music
0: down and told his friends to get a load of whatever was zooming around up there.
1: It was weird. The crew, laughing and half ignoring him, slowly angled their faces upwards. But once they looked up at the sky, their laughter turned into silent, shocked wonder. This wasn't just another Air Canada flight headed for Quebec. The craft must have been 60 feet long. Four lights were attached to it, and they were flashing in sequence. One, two, three, four. Then they all went off together for a moment before starting up again. It was mesmerizing. Lori forgot all about the cops that might be lurking around the next street corner. His friends forgot about their running gags. And as the lights slowly crossed over the road, Every head in the car turned from the right windows to the left.
0: For a few seconds after that, the craft disappeared. But by then, the group had an idea of what was coming. That 45-degree
1: angle was going to take it right into the bay. The teens watched in horror as a huge splash erupted out of the calm waters. This was no controlled emergency water landing. Not at that angle and not with that level of force. They could still see the craft sticking out of the water, but not much of it. They immediately started shouting. Whatever kind of plane that had been, it had definitely crashed right into the Bay of Maine. And whoever was in there was surely drowning. They needed to get to a phone now. They made it to a payphone within minutes, where Laurie hopped out of the car and called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP. He explained that he'd seen some kind of crash, and it wasn't
0: small. had to be a large plane, maybe a passenger jet. And it looked like the plane's remnants were floating about 1,000 feet out of Shag Harbor
1: in the Bay of Maine. Corporal Victor Werbeke curtly asked Lori to stay on hold in case the police needed to contact him for further information.
0: He was just about to repeat Lori's story to his colleagues with an eye roll. The kid was pulling some kind of drunken prank. They'd heard nothing about aircraft in trouble around Shag Harbor or anywhere along the Eastern Seaboard for that matter. But then the phone started ringing again. It wasn't just Laurie and his friends who'd seen a plane crash. A concerned local woman frantically explained
1: that she'd heard a strange noise and had seen several lights go down in the harbor. Another woman called in to report that she'd been driving 13 miles northeast with another witness. They'd seen several flashing lights falling into the water near town. When a fourth call came in, Werbicki knew this was no prank. Something had happened down at the harbor. He picked up Lori's line and asked to meet near the wreck. Then he called the Halifax Royal Canadian Mounted Police to alert them of the news. Halifax was the nearest big city. He summoned two local RCMP officers to meet him and Lori down by the water. And then, his frantic energy building, he ran out the door. God forbid, this was a passenger aircraft. But when Werbeke arrived at the harbor, he and his fellow officers didn't find a wrecked plane full of screaming passengers sinking into the water. They saw a few floating orange lights attached to an odd dome-shaped object, maybe
0: 60 feet long and 10 feet high, and it was slowly drifting out to sea.
1: Within 15 minutes of the crash, at 11.40 p.m., three RCMP officers were on the scene, along with up to 30 curious spectators. The Rescue Coordination Center at Halifax was contacted and informed of the incident, and locals started to scramble. They needed to find the nearest fishermen with boats. As they began calling up sleeping boatmen,
0: the Rescue Coordination Center began to confirm that There were indeed no reports of missing or endangered aircraft in the area. Meanwhile, the
1: orange lights turned yellow. But the crowd didn't have time to pause and consider these developments. They were busy with their frantic efforts to summon local fishermen and get the search party underway. If they didn't make it out onto the water soon, the lights would just keep receding into the sea. The tide was on its way out, the villagers knew.
0: Hushed gasps permeated the crowd as,
1: a few minutes later, the dimming gleams sank into the ocean. The disappearance of the lights only meant it was more urgent for the villagers to get a search party out into the water immediately. Bradford Shand and Lawrence Smith, whose fishing boats were berthed at a nearby pier, arrived on the scene.
0: Within 30 minutes of the crash, around 11.55 p.m., they clambered into their vessels and out into the bay. Several RCMP officers
1: and a few of the town's most experienced fishermen hopped in the boats with them. Around the same time, the Rescue Coordination Center notified the Canadian Coast Guard of the incident. Coast Guard Cutter 101, stationed at Clark's Harbor, six miles away, was dispatched. The village and Canada's official rescue
0: apparatuses were mobilized. And by now, everyone in Shag Harbor was awake.
1: They all wanted to be part of this very unusual event. Everyone watched as the fishing boats flicked on their powerful searchlights and the surface of the bay was
0: illuminated. And everyone saw the same thing. The plane was gone somewhere in the salty depths. But the surface of the bay was coated in a strange, almost glittery yellow
1: foam. It was spread out 80 feet wide and half a mile long. Its texture, the fishermen determined as they approached, was oddly oily, and it was about three inches thick. In one area,
0: sulfurous smelling bubbles seemed to rise to the surface of the water. By
1: 12.30 a.m., just over an hour after the apparent crash, more boats launched into the water to coordinate a grid search. Coast Guard Cutter 101 joined them, and they all combed the bay. They were looking for any debris or any survivors struggling to stay afloat. But they couldn't see anything except the odd yellow foam. The search widened its radius. They were moving farther and farther from the spot witnesses had pinpointed as the location of the crash and where the craft started to sink. Still nothing. By 4 a.m., the fishermen agreed it was time to return to bed. They'd come back in the morning. In the meantime, Coast Guard Cutter 101 would keep scanning the bay. Slowly, the villagers
0: returned to their homes and tucked back into bed but everyone was unsettled. They wondered why not one rescuer had found a scrap of debris. It was dark, but their men knew the ocean, even at night, and they'd had those blaring searchlights. Everyone had seen the water, smooth and
1: bare, except for that odd coating of yellow. They wondered if they'd witnessed death that night and whose death, but if they hadn't, Was it possible that they'd seen something even more sinister? Was it possible that whatever sank into their water wasn't a plane, but a UFO?
0: Coming up, we'll discuss the Canadian government's shocking conclusions
1: about the Shag Harbor crash. Now, back to the story. The night of October 4th, 1967 was an unusual one for the people of Shag Harbor. A strange aircraft crash disturbed the peaceful Bay of Maine at 11.25pm. They were only more alarmed when their intensive, hours-long search didn't dredge up a single scrap of debris. They knew the ocean in these parts. They should have been able to find something after a crash like that. By 4.30 a.m.,
0: most people were in bed, but not all of them were asleep. They were too busy worrying about what they'd seen and what it meant. Beds creaked across town as villagers tossed and turned. Sheets were thrown off, soaked with sweat, despite the chill. Something strange was
1: happening. Siblings whispered to one another from under their covers. By morning, when rescuers returned to the bay, the frantic energy had subsided. They were ready to conduct a thorough day search of the area and find whatever was there to be found. Everything looks less sinister in the light. But actually, the most sinister news of all was just about to come in. An exhaustive check by the Rescue Coordination Center determined
0: that not a single private, military, or commercial plane seemed to be missing. In addition, a radar installation at nearby Barrington Passage had
1: not detected anything in the area, plane crash or otherwise. That meant the crashed craft was officially labeled an unidentified flying object, a UFO. This moniker is a catch-all term for anything unknown caught zooming through the air. It didn't necessarily mean that the object was extraterrestrial, just that it was unidentified. But most people saw the letters UFO and thought aliens. Shag Harbor was thrown into turmoil. This was no longer a small town local drama. It was big national news. The Royal Canadian Air Force,
0: or RCAF, was informed of the event. They immediately dispatched a memo to the Royal Canadian Navy headquarters, requesting an underwater search be mounted
1: as soon as possible. By the morning of October 6th, around 30 hours after the initial crash, Navy divers were in the water. American troops
0: came too, with pilots, their own divers, and a massive barge. After all, this was the midst of the Cold War, and anything involving flying objects involved the U.S., as far as the American government was concerned.
1: But it wasn't just the involvement of U.S. and Canadian military that was making the crash into national news. It was also the fact that officials were openly talking about it as a UFO sighting. The RCAF informed the Halifax Chronicle Herald that they were very interested in the event. We get hundreds of reports every week, but the Shag Harbor incident is one of the few where we may get something concrete on it. And the Chronicle
0: Herald ran a bold headline on the basis of that quote. Could be something
1: concrete in Shag Harbor UFO, RCAF. Other outlets picked up the story. That was the kind of headline that sold papers. Because,
0: remember, this was 1967. People around the globe had their eyes on the stars, thanks to the space race between the U.S. and the USSR. And UFO sightings were at the height of their prominence in the zeitgeist. In 1961, American couple Barney and Betty Hill made headlines when they claimed they had been abducted by aliens and they were just one well-known
1: example of what can fairly be called a phenomenon. The US Air Force even ran a UFO investigation unit called Project Blue Book between 1952 and 1969. It was plenty busy. UFO sightings were reported almost weekly through those decades. The UFO craze
0: wasn't limited to Canada's southern neighbors either. In May 1967, Stefan Michalak, a Polish-Canadian mechanic, caught attention when he
1: claimed he was burned by one of two flying saucers. That was just a few months before the Shag Harbor incident. And so Canadians were on edge, fearful and fascinated by this new chapter in the ongoing saga of strange otherworldly spacecraft.
0: They waited attentively for news from the Navy dive. Perhaps, finally, this was the moment that UFOs would be proven to be more than just
1: unidentified objects. Everyone hoping for confirmation, however, was disappointed by the new rash of headlines on October 9th three days after the navy dispatched divers began their underwater search of the bay of maine the papers announced ufo search called off the chronicle herald
0: explained that the search had turned up quote not a trace not a
1: clue not a bit of anything an official department of national defense memo confirmed the findings It outlined the events of October 4th and the ensuing search, and it titled the document UFO Report. The crash was destined, it seemed, to remain a mystery, and the
0: people of Shag Harbor tried to live their lives as best they could without closure.
1: Lori Wickens, the teenager who reported the wreck, would never forget that day. The camera crews and journalists had driven back to Halifax, The American and Canadian military had gone back to looking for Soviets, and his miraculous sighting was simply ignored. He wasn't sure what to think.
0: Based on what he'd seen, what everyone in town had seen,
1: there had to be something out there in the bay. But as the streets of Shag Harbor settled back into their quiet, daily existence, there seemed to be nothing for it nothing but to hold tight to the knowledge of what they'd all witnessed. In the years since the event, the
0: Shag Harbor UFO Interpretive Center was opened. The Shag Harbor UFO Incident Society was formed and the village now hosts an annual UFO festival. The latter involves speeches by extraterrestrial experts and even a
1: reenactment of the events of October 4th, 1967, out on the bay. Laurie wickens now 67 years old is the president of the society and he continues to tell his story to reporters as he sums it up all i know is that we saw something and something came down the canadian government on the other hand seems ambivalent about keeping the shag harbor story alive In 2017, they denied the Shag Harbor UFO Incident Society a $20,000 grant to put on their annual festival. And some people aren't so sure that this decision was without malice. In fact, the festival received an anonymous donation
0: to make up for the lost government money in 2017. And the donor
1: submitted this statement with the money. Although there is much I can't reveal, without any hesitation, I can say the Canadian government and the international community it answers to appears to be concealing what happened in and around the waters of Shag Harbor, Canada on October 4th, 1967. People with the connections, notoriety, and finances are working hard to challenge how we view the world around us. Shag Harbor is one of the smoking guns that will be used to achieve this. This anonymous donor isn't the only one that thinks the government is hiding
0: something. Laurie Wickens himself believes the Navy-dispatched divers pulled something from the water in Shag Harbor's Bay between the 7th and 9th of October, 1967, and then hid the findings. He explained to the press, quote, I can't prove it, but in my opinion,
1: they found something. It's hard to say what really happened out there on the waters of Shag Harbor, but there are clues that point towards several equally alarming possibilities. If the government was hiding something, what was it hiding? Maybe it was a secret weapon being developed for use against the Soviets. Or perhaps
0: the original explanation was the correct one. Shag Harbor was visited by aliens, aliens who might still be walking amongst us.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. Next week, we'll explore why Lori
0: Wickens and others suspect the government is hiding something and what that might be. We'll also weigh in on how credible we find the stories about the Shag Harbor
1: UFO crash. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite
0: music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast
1: originals like Extraterrestrial for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joel Stein. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.